0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Losing Game by J.F. Powers, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 1955.
1: Oh, that was it. The pastor had won again. He was safe in his room, secure in the knowledge that his curate wouldn't knock and start the whole business all over. Not for a while, anyway. Father Faber went away. Going downstairs, he told himself that though he had lost, he had extended the pastor as never before and would get the best of him yet.
0: The story was chosen by Annie Prue who is the author of four story collections and five novels, most recently Barkskins, which was published earlier this year. Hi, Annie. Hi, Deborah. So, J.F. Powers was one of the first people you considered reading for the podcast. What made him come to mind? Well, he's, he's a very favorite author of mine. I've loved his
1: writing for many, many years. I think he's um, worth looking at. Again and again and again I think I've been reading powers for about 30 years.
0: How did you come across him for the first time?
1: I honestly don't remember. Uh-huh. Um it, it was it was one of the short stories, but then I very quickly discovered Maudiban and later was excited when Wheat that springeth green came out his final second novel. Uh, so powers has always been of great interest to me for the the size and the structure of his stories and their smallness and largeness at the same time.
0: What is it that makes them small and large what are the what are the qualities They seem to be
1: on the surface um rather slight stories about the minor problems of priests and curates and pastors and and one of the things that interested me about them i think at first and still does is the um there's kind of an underlying paint of sin on some of these stories and of the seven deadly sins the one that seemed to interest powers the most is superbia pride <laughs> So this is there. It's it's lurking in every single story and it's certainly lurking in this story.
0: You know, Powers wrote so much about uh about Catholic priests in America. He was Catholic himself, but he was never a priest. W- why do you think he had this as his subject?
1: This this is a good question and I don't think it's easy to answer either. I think that some novelists, in fact writers, I won't call him a novelist because he thought of himself as a short story writer primarily, I think many writers get a subject that they feel is theirs and they stick with that subject and they become um, identified with it and in the end it is a bit of a trap. Powers had a grand success with the second story that he wrote. It was called Lion's Hearts and Leaping Does. Mm -hmm. And this story is exquisite, beautifully shaped, deep, moving, has been anthologized time and time again. He was 25 years old when he wrote this masterpiece and immediately made his name. But I think it also trapped him. In the churchly priest, curate, bishop mode, I think he had such an identification with that story that he simply wasn't able to get loose from it. And, of course, it's a territory that was safe from invasion by other writers. (laughs) So uh, he, he pursued this, and he could see a large world in what seemed to be on the page a small world, So that's my guess, and it's only a guess. I don't know.
0: Right. Well, we'll talk some more after the reading. And now here's Annie Prue reading A Losing Game by J.F. Powers
1: A Losing Game. Father Faber, coming from the bathroom, stopped and knocked at the pastor's door. Something about the door had said, Why not? No sound came from the room, but the pastor had a ghostly step, and suddenly there he was, opening the door an inch, giving his new curate a glimpse of the green eye-shade he wore and of the chaos in which he dwelt. Father Faber saw the radio in the unmade bed, the correspondence, pamphlets, the folding money, and all the rest of it. But the bishop, on an official visitation, barging into the room and then hurriedly backing out, had passed off to the attending clergy as a little unfinished business. Yes, yes, said the pastor. How about that table you promised me? The pastor just looked at him. The one from my room, remember? Something to put my typewriter on. See what I can do the pastor had said that before. Father Faber said, I'm using the radiator now. The pastor nodded, apparently granting him permission to continue using it. Father Faber put down the old inclination to give up. I thought you said you'd fix me up, Father. See what I can do, Father. Now? Busy now. The pastor started to close the door, which would have been according to the rules of their little game, but Father Faber didn't budge, which was not according to the rules. Tell you what I'll do, Father, he said. I'll just look around in the basement and you won't have to bother. I know how busy you are. Father Faber had a strange feeling that he was getting somewhere with the pastor. What he'd said so far had been right, but he had to keep it up. Of course, I'll need to know the combination. He saw the pastor buck and shudder at the idea of telling anyone the combination of the lock that preserved his treasures. Better go with you, the pastor said, feeling his throat. Father Faber nodded. This was what he'd had in mind all the time. While the pastor inside his room was looking for his collar, always a chance of meeting a parishioner around the stairs, Father Faber relaxed and fell to congratulating himself. He had been tough, and it had worked. The other way had proved a waste of time. After a bit, though, Father Faber took another view of the situation, knowing, as he did so, that it was the right one, that the door hadn't just happened to shut behind the pastor. The man wasn't coming out. Ah, that was it. The pastor had won again. He was safe in his room, secure in the knowledge that his curate wouldn't knock and start the whole business all over. Not for a while, anyway. Father Faber went away. Going downstairs, he told himself that though he had lost, he had extended the pastor as never before and would get the best of him yet. Father Faber sensed John, the janitor, before he saw him sitting in the dark under the staircase. This was one of his stations. He might be found in this rather episcopal chair, which was also a hall tree, or on a box in the furnace room, or in the choir loft behind the organ, or in the visiting priest's confessional. There were probably other places which Father Faber didn't know about. John moved around a lot, fox-like. Killing time. Father Faber switched on the light. John pulled himself together and managed to smile, his glasses as always frosted over with dust so that he seemed to be watching you through basement windows. John, you know that padlock on the door to the church basement? Father Faber asked. John nodded. It's not much of a lock. Think we can open it? John frowned. A tap on the side? John shook his head. No, Father Faber asked. Sorry, Father. So, Father Faber turned away. Will you need a hammer, Father? Don't think I'll need one. Sure you won't come along? Awful busy, Father. But John found time to get up and accompany Father Faber to the iron staircase that led to the church basement. There they parted. Father Faber opened the staircase door and snapped the light switch on the wall. He wasn't surprised when nothing happened. He left the door open for light. A half-flight down, pausing, he hearkened to John's distant footsteps, rapidly climbing, and then he went winding down into the gloom. At the bottom, he sat down on a step before the locked door and waited. Soon he heard a slight noise above. Presently rounding the last turn, descending into view, came the pastor. Oh, there you are, said Father Faber, rising. The pastor voiced no complaint, and why should he? He'd lost a trick, but Father Faber had taken it honorably, according to the rules, in a manner worthy of the pastor himself. Father Faber was up on his toes, straining to see— the pastor was fooling with something inside the fuse box on the wall, standing up to it, his back almost a shield against Father Faber's eyes. Overhead, a bulb lit up. So that was it, thought Father Faber, coming down to earth. And to think that he'd always blamed the wiring for the way some of the lights didn't work around the church and rectory, recommending a general checkup, prophesying death by conflagration to the pastor... Father Faber, rising again, saw the pastor screw in another fuse where none had been before. That would be the one controlling the basement light. The pastor dealt next with the door, dropping into a crouch to dial the lock. Father Faber leaned forward like an umpire waiting for the pitch, but with the pastor hunched up to the door as he was, it was impossible to learn the combination. He scraped his foot in disgust, grinding a bit of fallen plaster. The pastor's fingers tumbled together. He seemed to be listening. After a moment, he began to dial again, apparently having to start all over. There, he said finally. He removed the lock, threw open the door, and switched on the basement light, but before he went in, he stepped over to the fuse box the overhead light went out. Father Faber entered the basement. He had been there only once before and then not very far inside. The pastor secured the door behind them. He removed a black cap from a convenient clothes tree and put it on. Protection against the dust? Father Faber hadn't realized that the pastor, who now looked like a burglar in an insurance ad, would care about dust. The pastor glanced at him. Quickly, Father Faber looked away. He gazed around him in silence. It was impossible to decide what all that he saw meant. On the closed tree alone, Father Faber noted a cartridge belt, a canteen stenciled with the letters U-S, a pair of snowshoes, an old bicycle tire of wrinkled red rubber, a beekeeper's veil, One of Father Faber's first services to the pastor had been to help John carry two workbenches into the basement. At that time, he had thought the pastor must have plans for a school in which manual training would be taught. Now he felt that the pastor had no plans at all for any of the furniture and junk down there. A few of the unemployed statues, when seen at a distance, those with their arms extended, appeared to be trying to get the place straightened up, to be carrying things. But on closer examination, they proved to be preoccupied with a higher kind of order and were carrying croziers. The pastor went to a rack containing billiard cues, poles, and guns. Here, he said, bringing an air rifle to Father Faber. Father Faber accepted the gun. He tipped it, listening to the BB shot bowling up and down inside. What's this for? Rats. Couldn't kill a rat with this, could I? Could. But Father Faber noticed that the pastor was arming himself with a twenty two rifle. What's that? He asked covetously. This gun's not accurate, said the pastor, from a shooting gallery. What's wrong with trapping him? Too smart. How about... Poison! Die in the walls! The pastor moved off, bearing his gun under his arm in a way that was supposed to assure safety. Father Faber held his gun the way the pastor did and followed him. He could feel the debris closing in, growing up behind him. The path ahead appeared clear only when he looked to either side. He trailed a finger in the dust on a tabletop, revealing the grain. He stopped. The wood was maple, he thought, maple, oiled and aged to the color of saddle leather. There were little niches along its edges designed to hold glasses. The table was round, a whist table it might be, and apparently sound. Here was a noble piece of furniture that would do wonders for his room, it could be used for his purposes and more. That might be the trouble with it. The pastor was strong for temperance. It might not be enough for Father Faber to deplore the little niches. Oh, Father, he called. The pastor retraced his steps. This might do, Father Faber said grudgingly, careful not to betray a real desire, There was an awful glazed green urn in the middle of the table which Father Faber feared would leave scratches or a ring. A thing like that which might have spent its best days in a hotel while the elevators belonged on the floor. Father Faber wanted to remove it from the table, but he controlled himself. Don't move, said the pastor. Spider. Father Faber held still while the pastor brushed it off his back thanks. Father Faber relaxed and gazed upon the table again. He had to have it. He would have it. But the pastor was moving on. Father Faber followed, having decided to say nothing just then, needing more time to think. The important thing was not to seem eager. It isn't always what we want that's best for us, the pastor had said more than once. He loved to speak of Phil Mooney, a classmate of Father Faber's who had been offered a year of free study at a major secular university but had been refused permission to accept it by the bishop. Young Mooney, as the pastor said, had taken it so well. This, how about this, said Father Faber. He had stopped before a nightstand, a little tall for typing. I could saw the legs off, some, The pastor, who had paused, now went ahead again faster. Father Faber followed once more, wondering if he'd abused the man's sensibilities, some article of the accumulator's creed. He saw a piano stool well suited to his strategy. This he could give up with good grace. Now, here's something, he said, I wouldn't mind having this. He sounded as though he thought he could get it, too. The pastor glanced back and shook his head. Belongs upstairs. Oh, I see, said Father Faber submissively. There was no piano in the rectory unless that, too, was in the pastor's room. The pastor, obviously pleased with his curate's different tone, stopped to explain. A lot of this will go upstairs when we're through remodeling. Father Faber forgot himself. Remodeling? he said, and tried to get the pastor to look him in the eye. The pastor turned away. Father Faber, who suddenly saw his error, began to reflect upon it. There was no material evidence of remodeling, it was true, but he had impugned the pastor's good intentions. Was there a pastor worth his salt who didn't have improvements in mind, contractors, and costs on the brain? The pastor and Father Faber moved deeper into the interior. Above them, the jungle joined itself in places. Now Father Faber passed under the full length of a ski without taking notice of it until confronted by its triangular head arching down at him. He shied away. Suddenly, the pastor stopped. Father Faber pulled up short, cradling his gun, which he'd been using as a cane. Something coiled on the trail? How's this? said the pastor. He was trying the drawers of a pitiful old sideboard affair with its mirrors out and handles maimed, a poor blind thing. Like this? he asked. He seemed to have no idea what they were searching for. I need something to type on, Father Faber said bluntly. The pastor hit the trail again, somehow leaving the impression that Father Faber was the one who was being difficult. They continued to the uttermost end of the basement. Here they were confronted by a small mountain of pamphlets. In the bowels of the mountain something moved. The pastor's hands shifted on his gun. They're in there, he whispered, and drew back a pace. He waved Father Faber to one side, raised the gun, and pumped lead into the pamphlets. Sput-flub! Sput-flub! Sput-spunk-spit! Father Faber reached for his left leg, dropped to his knees, his gun clattering down under him. He grabbed up his trouser leg and saw a little hole bleeding in his calf. It hurt, but not as much as he would have thought. The pastor came over to examine the leg. He bent down. Just a flesh wound, he said, straightening up. You're lucky. Lucky? Tire there at the bottom of the pile, absorbed most of the firepower. Bullet went through and ricocheted. You're lucky. Here. The pastor reached out toward the wound. Oh, no, said Father Faber and lowered his trouser leg. The pastor seemed to be surprised that Father Faber wouldn't permit him to pinch the bullet out with his dirty fingers. Father Faber stood up. The leg held him, but he was sure his walking would be affected. He thought he could feel some blood in his sock. Afraid I'll have to leave you, he said. He glanced at the pastor, still seeking sympathy. And there it was, at last, showing in the pastor's face some sympathy, and words were on the way. No, caught again in the log jam of the man's mind and needing a shove if they were to find their way down to the mouth, and so Father Faber kept on looking at the pastor, shoving. Sorry had to happen, muttered the pastor. Apparently that was going to be all. He was picking up Father Faber's gun. Painfully, Father Faber began to walk. Sorry that it had to happen? Anyone else having fired the shot would have been only too glad to assume the blame. What kind of man was this? This was a man of very few words, as everyone knew, and he had said he was sorry. How sorry, then? Sorry enough? Father Faber stopped beside the maple table. How about this, he asked, sounding as if he hadn't mentioned it before. It was a daring maneuver, but he was giving the pastor a chance to reverse himself without losing face, to redeem himself. The pastor was shaking his head. Father Faber lost patience. He'd let the old burglar shoot him down, and this was what he got for it. Why not, he demanded. The pastor was looking down, not meeting Father Faber's eye. You don't have a good easy chair, do you? he asked. Father Faber, half-turning, saw the chair the pastor had in mind. There just weren't any words for it. Father Faber regarded it stoically, the dust lying fallow in the little mohair furrows, the ruptured bottom, and didn't know what to say. It would be impossible to convey his true feelings to the pastor. The pastor really did think that this was a good easy chair, There was no way to get at the facts with him. But the proper study of curates is pastors. It's too good, Father Faber said, making the most of his opportunity. If I ever sat down in a chair like that, I I might never get up again. No, it's not for me. Oh, the pastor was pleased. The man was literally smiling. Of a self-denying nature himself, famous for it in the diocese, He saw the temptation that such a chair would be to his curate. No, he said, and appeared, besides pleased, relieved. No, thanks, said Father Faber briskly and moved on. It might be interesting to see how far he could go with the man, but some other time his legs seemed to be stiffening. When they arrived back at the door, the pastor, in a manner that struck Father Faber as too leisurely under the circumstances, racked the guns, hung up his cap, and boxed the dust out of his knees and elbows, all the time gazing back where they'd been. Not, Father Faber thought, with the idea of returning to the rats as soon as he decently could, but with the eyes of a game conservationist looking to the future. I was thinking I'd better go to the hospital with this, said Father Faber. He felt he ought to tell the pastor that he didn't intend to let the bullet remain in his leg. He left the pastor locking up and limped out and up the stairs. Better take the car, the pastor called after him. Father Faber pulled up short. Thanks, he said and limped on. The hospital was only a few blocks away, but it hadn't occurred to him that he might walk there. He was losing every trick. Earlier he had imagined the pastor driving him to the hospital and the scene there when they arrived, how it would be when the pastor's indifference to his curate's leg became apparent to the doctors and nurses, causing their hearts to harden against him. But all this the pastor had doubtless foreseen, and that was why he wasn't going along. The man was afraid of public opinion. At the hospital, however, they only laughed when Father Faber told him what had happened to him, and when, after they had taken the bullet out, he asked if they had to report the matter to the police. Just laughed at him. Only a flesh wound, they said. They didn't even want to keep him off the leg. It had been a mistake for him to ask, laughed, told him just to change his sock. But he arranged for the pastor to get the bill, and on leaving, although he knew nothing would come of it, he said, I thought you were required by law to report all gunshot cases. When he returned to the rectory, he found the pastor and John talking softly in the upstairs hall. They said nothing to him, which he thought strange, and so he said nothing to them. He was lucky, he guessed, that they hadn't laughed at him. He limped into his room, doubting whether John had even been told about the shooting, and closed the door with a little bang. He turned and stood still. Then, after a few moments in which he realized why the pastor and John were in the hall, he limped over to the window to the old mohair chair. Ruefully, he recalled his false praise of the chair. How it had cost him! For the pastor had taken him at his word. After the shooting accident, the pastor must have been in no mood to give Father Faber a table in which he seemed only half interested. Nothing would do then but that the wounded curate be compensated with the object of his only enthusiasm in the basement and damn the consequences. No one knew better than the pastor where soft living could land a young priest, and yet there it was, luxury itself, procured by the pastor and dragged upstairs by his agent and now awaiting his curate's pleasure. And to think it might have been the maple table. They hadn't done a thing to the chair. The dust was all there, every grain intact, they were waiting for him the pastor and John waiting to see him sitting in it he thought of disappointing them of holding up as the pastor had earlier so long ago but he just couldn't contend with the man any more that day he didn't know how he'd ever be able to thank them John for carrying it up from the basement the pastor for the thing itself but he limped over to the door to let them in oh It was a losing game.
0: That was Annie Prue reading A Losing Game by J.F. Powers. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 1955 and was included in The Stories of J.F. Powers, which was published by New York Review Books in 2000. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. on a surface level, is is about one man's sort of attempt to assert his power over another man. Do you think that it matters that these characters are priests? Could they be sort of any two men thrown together in a, in a kind of hierarchical power structure like this?
1: That's possible. Um, he didn't do that with any of his stories, but I think he could have I have always been intrigued, Um, you know, his daughter, uh, Catherine Ann Powers, put together and edited the marvelous collection of letters in her suitable accommodations that came out a few years ago. And she did not um, really discuss that in the book. There's a lot in between the letters themselves that explains this very unusual man. He seemed to be carrying a burden of purity of short story writing, as correct and as and as clean as he could make them, without going into a world where ordinary people, Protestants, <laughs> were <laughs> up going about their business. But she does say that there was at one time um, a Plan to do a family life novel, and of course it would have been ideal in many ways. He certainly had a large family to draw from. They had five children, and his need to write and not to work meant that they were extremely poor for years. They were never with their own home. They always were living in borrowed or specially rented or loaned houses, or bouncing between Minnesota and Ireland. Mm-hmm. So the situation was dreadful for a writer, any writer, and he apparently had to have a lot of quiet time, and it just wasn't there. The family life thing talked about, never got written.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps it's interesting to think, in, in the midst of all of that kind of instability, to have a structure to write about that was so stable that w- in which the the lines were so clearly drawn. You know, yes. you have your position, you have your you're a curate, you're a pastor, you're a bishop. Perhaps there's a temptation in that. I think you're quite
1: right on that. Yes, it was solid ground. It was something he knew, he understood, uh, he was at home, and I think that his characters seem so so real to us because he was so comfortable with them. He got it in a way most of us don't. There's nothing churchy or aloof about about his priests. They're concerned with small things like getting shot in the leg.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. You know, James Wood wrote a piece about Powers in The New Yorker in which he said, Powers is threatening and ought not to be easily enjoyed by Catholics because his work suggests that the religious life, at least for priests, has become practically unattainable. Hardly ever in more than a thousand pages of fiction do we see one of Power's priests reflect spiritually on a spiritual matter. You know, he says they're they're, they're too busy involved in the business of priestly activity instead of the practice of, of Christian witness. And it's true. There's no spirituality at all in this story unless it's sort of deeply buried. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think it is deeply buried, but I think it's there. You can see Father Faber trying to understand where the pastor is coming from. And there are a couple of places in the story where he just gets it that his own desire for a piece of furniture, so he can get his typewriter off the radiator, Mm -hmm. um, are just um, perhaps out of place. He tries to see... He seems to bend over a bit backwards in trying to to be agreeable and at the same time make his his own wishes come true. But I think a lot of the stories do fall back on uh, the sin of pride, and I think that was part of Power's own life too. And I think Wood, I don't remember uh, in that essay if he did discuss lions and... um, leaping doze, but that's certainly a very spiritual story. And it really was, you're so right, the only spiritual story that Powers wrote. Also, he did call down wrath upon himself by many, many Catholic clergy who found his uh, characters offensive and disagreeable and too grasping and worldly. So there was that, but he kept on.
0: I suppose you could say you could defend this pastor by saying that he's sort of chastising Father Faber for the, the sin of greed or sort of lasciviousness, this desirousness of, of something material. Or you can look at it as he's afraid of losing control in a quite petty way. I don't know, which would your reading be?
1: I think the losing control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, And petty is a definitely great word for many, many of his characters. I'm wondering if it doesn't have something to do with the pettiness of Power's own life, which was concerned with fixing broken furniture, with repairing plumbing, uh, with, as he once put it, playing policemen with the children, keeping them in line. And his, his life itself was not easy. It was just filled with this small, bickering, difficult process, which the underlying problem was no money, no money at all. He did teach from time to time, and he was offered many teaching jobs. He took them as infrequently as he possibly could apparently feeling that it was a step down from the pure art of sitting and writing in quietness. He wrote slowly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: very slowly. I think Sean Phelan said one time that he could spend a morning putting in a comma and then the afternoon taking it out.
0: <laughs> so this whole thing, is it's kind of a, a cat and mouse game and – Obviously, the pastor wins it and, he, you know, Father Faber, he comes out of it with a bullet wound in this dirty old chair he didn't want. And he says in the last line, it was a losing game. But but my question is, who actually won what? I mean, what what did the pastor win? It's not a moral triumph. <laughs> it's not,
1: <you> know. <laughs> No, it isn't. <laughs> again the game what is this game that they're playing and who are they playing it with is he speaking of catholics versus protestants in america which he could well be um a bit of a sideline is sideline is um this was in the 40s when the second world war was going on when his when that very very fine story lion's hearts and leaping Doe's, was published Uh, Powers was in prison. He refused to turn up for the draft. He he had fallen in with a group of Catholic pacifists, and at this time, Catholics were barred from being conscientious objectors, barred by the U.S. government. The war with the Protestants was a, a real kind of thing, too. I really like it when characters turn up in the stories. They don't in this one someone who always says, well, I'm not a Catholic, but I, I think it's one of the big religions or something like that. There's <laughs> <You know? laughs> this little dismissive tone and the fact that much of the bad guys are those who consort with um, Protestants in commerce, and um, this is a lot more obvious in the uh, Morturban novel and also in Wheat That Springeth Green, which I for one loved. It just seems so sad, though, that nothing worked out for poor Powers. None of the awards, none of the praise came his way. Well, he
0: did. He won the National Book Award in 1963 with uh, *Mort Durban*. Yes, he
1: did. But his publisher, Doubleday, which was the biggest in the country at that point, handled it very badly. The book didn't get the publicity it needed. There weren't enough copies and on and on and on, so that the books, despite the National Book Award, sold half or less than half of the uh, copies it was expected to. This was the book that was going to change everything for powers, and it didn't.
0: I mean, it's amazing when you look at the roster for that year. He beat out uh, Nabokov, Updike, and Katherine Ann Porter. And then by the time that he died in, uh, I think, 1999, all of his books were out of print. And he'd really fallen by the wayside. I wonder, you know, why do you think that was? Why did people stop reading him or never really start reading him?
1: I think they never really started. I think despite the praise often given that he was the best um, writer in America, I think the praise was—it didn't reach the right ears. I think there was never anything to back it up. And let's face it, a lot of people— found a a turn-off that there were stories about priests. They were hoping for something a little more meaty, uh, something more Hemingway-like, perhaps.
0: (laughs) Well, I love the fact that someone uh, once told him that Mort Durban was a book for Catholics, and and he said, would you say that The Wind in the Willows is a book for animals? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) priceless. But I wonder, you know, do you feel that the writing is dated in any way? Do you feel that it's sort of culturally, you know, people wouldn't be drawn to it now? I think the writing is
1: slightly dated, but I feel as drawn to it as ever. I don't think it has to have today's characters to be of interest, and one can always take pleasure in the writing, which is just, Marvelous! He really was a master of the subtle tone. Uh, the way his writing is done, he doesn't wham you with Dickensian descriptions of uh, physiognomies and clothes and situations. Mm-hmm. Everything is extremely subtle, a few brief phrases here and there and glances and voice modulations. He was at such trouble to always choose the right words and he really really did play punctuation like a, a virtuoso instrument in his hands this collection of semicolons and periods <laughs> and dashes he used the dash to the greatest effect
0: <laughs> let's do you people can't see the punctuation in your reading right I mean the other the other thing about him is just how funny he was
1: yes exactly I mean
0: this this story is hilarious you know I'm not Catholic and I don't I'm not particularly drawn to stories about priests for that reason. But I would read this, you know, another another 20 times and still find it funny and laugh. Mm-hmm. It's
1: that a dry, mordant humor that is irresistible. And it's the same in the novels, too. He writes them like they were just really long, short stories. Although he claimed himself to be just a short story writer. Um, something I find kind of interesting... Um, Some people may remember a classic film from the 50s called The Diary of a Country Priest Mm -hmm. done by Robert Bresson. And it seems to me that there are great similarities here between that film and his stories, not because of the fact that a priest is figured in both, but because they're spare and sparse, both of them. And the thing that makes a lot of powers work— really work is that he knew very well the less there is the more it
0: resonates and it's the same with that film and something about the structure of the uh, you know the church system or the clergy gives him a level of absurdity it's this kind of strange life in which grown men are forced to kind of live together whether they like each other or not <laughs> indeed and struggle in a kind of parent child relationship of, you know, reproof and rebellion. <laughs> and, and yet they're, they're grown men who are supposed to be sort of moral authorities. Yeah, the the child factor
1: that's, that's in that I think is very, very true, very pronounced. And I wonder if his own home life didn't have something to do with it too. There, I think there was a hierarchy from the little bits that I gleaned from Catherine Powers' Suitable Accommodations collection of letters that things within the family were not all that different than they were in someone's parish. So, <laughs> almost as many people do. <laughs> but uh, there's um, a- another thing about Powers that uh, aside from the meticulous craftsmanship His ear for the American vernacular is extraordinary. The only person I can, the only writer I can think of who was that on the money was Ring Lardner, who's also forgotten these days, who wrote many, many baseball and sporting uh, stories, but was really um, excellent at vernacular.
0: Now Powers has the the particular language of the
1: church, he does, but it's the stories come to us in American slang, and somewhat uh what the Midwest feels is the way things should be said. There are lots of pompous statements that are absurd. But one of the things that he does so well are just these tiny little throwaway, apparently, throwaway
0: things. Yeah, he has these wonderful details. I, I love the image in this story of, of John sitting under the stairs in one of his stations. <laughs> you know, this yes. idea that this janitor runs through his stations of the cross within this, this house.
1: I also like the table that was the the color of old saddlewood. It, I mean, you can see it's a beautiful table just by the the mention of the color, and
0: he it, it never gets it. Hmm. Well, it's it's a losing game. Do you would you call him a satirist? Do you think this is satire about the church, or do you think it's more slapstick with those you know bullets ricocheting off the? I think he stops short of both of those situations.
1: I think he's too sly and wry to be labeled with slapstick. Mm -hmm. But he comes awfully close. (laughs) He really does. And the absurdity of the thoughts— we know we know what Father Faber feels about being shot by the burglar pastor almost entirely by his thoughts and his imaginary scene at the hospital where the doctors and nurses would be shocked by the pastor's unfeeling attitude, but these afterthoughts are not really part of the action; it's just a private. Thing like anyone might have. I mean, people do imagine situations like that. It's this kind of ability to get into an interior position in the story that's so amazing about this. Most stories have a lot of external uh, things happening, but with powers, you get the internal reflections and wonderings and imaginings that are missing from a lot of literature.
0: Now, you sometimes write funny stories. Do you feel that you're in any way guided by what Powers did with humor?
1: I think probably subconsciously I might be. I never gave it any solid thought. (laughs) Just because, you know, I think you do absorb the work that you love and it comes to you as a way that things can be done. I certainly like brevity and shrinking down to bare minimums as much as possible. I like trying to get the interior side of characters in there, too. And I uh, I am guessing that, yes, that's probably something I've absorbed from a love of powers.
0: Well, thank you so much, Annie. Well, my pleasure. J.F. Powers, who died in 1999, was the author of nine books of fiction, including the novels Mort Durban and Wheat That Springeth Green, both of which were reissued by New York Review Books in 2000. A collection of his letters, Suitable Accommodations, and an autobiographical story of family life, edited by his daughter, Catherine A. Powers, was published by Farrar Strauss and Giroux in 2013. Annie Proulx won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award for her novel The Shipping News. Her most recent novel, Barkskins, was published in June. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Author's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Author's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.